All right, this morning, 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we are. If you have a Bible and are following along, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 41 through 46. I want us to zoom out um, to the entire Old Testament, sort of see the whole context before we zoom in on these six verses. Um, So I've got a slide for us that'll sort of communicate the flow of the Old Testament and just six few steps. I want to credit my third grade teacher, Mrs. Dunn, who taught me how to utilize Microsoft Paint. Um, And I am utilizing these skills all these years later. Kids stay in school. It matters. Um, Even computer lab. But that's where I made this. Isn't it beautiful? As you guys know, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the universe. That is the declaration of the very first chapter of the Bible. God created our world good. The pinnacle of his creation was us, humanity, his image bearers. We were meant to shine forth his glory and beauty and righteousness and love. Of course, tragically, we failed to do that. Our first parents failed to do that. We fell into sin. But God graciously was going to bring blessing back to his creation through the man Abraham. Already in Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man Abraham, and he gives Abraham promises. He says, I am going to undo the curse of sin by blessing the world through you, Abraham, and all of your descendants. And so God multiplies Abraham into Isaac, into Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and off they go. The nation of Israel is established. That's Abraham's descendants. God's going to bring blessing to the world through his people, the nation Israel. Then God raises up this man named Moses. And Moses is the one through whom God gives his law to his people. God's people need God's law in order to regulate how they live, in order to regulate how they worship so they can live righteously, so they can worship appropriately. God gives the law through Moses. And then the people want a king. The people want a king like the other nations. So God raises up Saul. Saul is the first king. He was sort of a false start. So David then is quickly raised up, and we have the monarchy. Uh, God's people are are now not just a people, but they are a kingdom. And God says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David's kingdom is going to last forever. He gives promises to David that his kingdom will not be overthrown. His throne will not be undone. However, we also see in David's life that he is just as corrupt as his forefathers, all the way back to Adam. David's life is, is riddled with sin. And that sin is passed on to his son, King Solomon. And that sin is passed on to Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. Things have gotten so bad by the third generation of the Davidic monarchy that the nation is split in two. There's a northern kingdom that keeps the name Israel. There's a southern kingdom where Jerusalem is that goes by the name of Judah. That's how bad things got amongst God's people. They were split in half. There was a division between the two. And during this time period, God raises up prophets In the southern kingdom, he raised up prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. In the northern kingdom, he raised up prophets like Elijah, which is why I bring all this up, because we're studying 1 Kings chapter 18, studying the life 
of Elijah. The prophets were meant to call people back to God's law, meant to call people back to faith in God's promises. No more compromise with the false gods. No more syncretism with foreign nations that were bringing in idolatry. The prophets were calling God's people back to faithfulness. So that's sort of Old Testament context for where we are specifically in 1 Kings 18. We're in this period of division where there's the northern and southern kingdom and God has raised up Elijah to speak God's word to the northern kingdom. You guys remember that sort of the backdrop of Elijah's ministry is this famine. God says that he is going to bring a famine upon the land because of King Ahab's disobedience. And then last week we saw Elijah confront King Ahab and his idolatry. There was this God contest between King Ahab's God, Baal, and the true God, the Lord. And we saw how Baal's prophets failed to call down fire on the sacrifice, but the Lord showed up in an amazing way, proving that He is God. Well, we're picking up the story right from where we left off in verse 40. We're going to read verses 41 through 46 of 1 Kings chapter 18. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. And Elijah said to King Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of the rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And Elijah said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So Elijah's servant went up, looked out at the sea, and he said, There's nothing. And Elijah said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, finally, Elijah's servant said, Behold, there's a little cloud like a man's hand rising up out of the sea. And so Elijah said, Go up. And say to King Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down the mountain, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And Elijah gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Does prayer actually change anything? Whenever difficult situations come upon us, both believers and non-believers alike, we almost instinctively pray. Perhaps after a near-miss automobile accident, almost as naturally as breathing, you say, thank you, God. Or perhaps when the airplane turbulence is really heavy, and the anxiety level rises, it just blurts out of you, help me, God. Back in November, just before I started working here, I got a sinus infection that somehow started to cause pain behind and sort of around my left eye, and I have never felt such intense and constant pain. It felt like I was repeatedly getting punched on the left side of my face from the inside of my face. And I couldn't keep my head up. I couldn't get through the work day. I went to bed at 7 a.m. I was tossing and turning and crying, and you can bet praying. Help me, Lord. 
Heal me, Lord, have mercy. I mean, those were the most easy prayers I have ever prayed because I was so desperate for relief. But did it actually change anything? Or was it just the antibiotics that my doctor prescribed me? Does prayer matter? Is it really necessary? Is it useful? Well, in the New Testament book of James, chapter 5, James is instructing the church about prayer. And in order to do so, he references 1 Kings chapter 18, our verses for this morning. James writes in James chapter 5, verse 16, quote, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. For example, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then Elijah prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So does prayer actually change anything? Well, the bold claim of Christianity and the biblical witness tell us that prayer has great power as it is working. The King James translates it, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Any of you guys formerly fundamentalist Baptists grew up, had to memorize that? The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So yes, in this verse, as he's meditating on Elijah's life, James says, yes, Prayer works. It's powerful, greatly powerful even. And I want to bring this up in light of our strategy as a church. If you've been around Woodside for any amount of time, then you know that our strategy for growing this church and reaching our community is really pretty simple. It's not that we don't think you're smart. It's that we want to laser focus on as few things as possible so that we can do those things as good as possible. And here they are, worship, serving, and life groups. Worship, serve, life groups. Those are the three commitments we're asking from our church members in order to grow this church. We want to gather for worship. We want to put our gifts to use serving. And we want to gather throughout this community, little lighthouses for the gospel, reaching our neighbors and networks with Jesus' good news. Worship, serve, and life groups. That's our strategy. But friends, how tragic if we put ourselves to work fulfilling those commitments and it's not fueled by prayer. All those things can hardly be effective if worshiping and serving and doing life together through life groups is not fueled by prayer. And so I want to offer you the opportunity. I know you guys attend the 11 a.m., But there is a prayer service at 8 a.m. in the kids' room upstairs. If you ever happen to wake up early enough, you are free to join us. There was four of us there this morning seeking the Lord for the sake of this gathering, that the Spirit would be here, that the gospel's power would be on display. You can worship with us at 8 a.m. Also for your service team, how are you serving? And are you praying for whatever you're serving in? Uh, Kids ministry, life groups, connect, security, different ministries throughout the area where you may be serving. I know when I was a 
student small group leader, I used to put the names of the students in my small group on the dashboard of my car so that I couldn't get away from an opportunity to pray for these young people. What about in your life group? If you're leading a life group right now, I encourage you, do the same thing. Your efforts at reaching out to your friends, your effort at creating community in that life group is almost nothing but futile if it's not fueled by the power of prayer. So this morning, as we are meditating on and reflecting on this part of Elijah's life, we're asking, how do we pray? If prayer is as powerful as James claims it to be, based on Elijah's example, how do we pray? First, we're going to pray in alignment with God's Word. We learn from Elijah to pray in alignment with God's Word. So let's look back at the text, verse 41. The Lord has just won this God contest between himself and Baal. The prophets of Baal received God's judgment. Then picking it back up in verse 41, Elijah said to King Ahab, Go up, eat and drink. For there is the sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. But then he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees in this posture of prayer. So even though the Lord has defeated and embarrassed Baal, the work of proving that he is the only life-giving God is not complete. In order to finally show himself as the only life-giving God, the Lord also needs to give rain. The Lord also needs to give life once again to the crops of his people. And Elijah is confident that the Lord is going to give this rain. So confident that he tells King Ahab, go ahead and eat and drink. I can almost hear the sound of rushing rain. So go ahead and start to celebrate, Ahab. And why is Elijah so confident that God will soon bring rain? Well, he said that he would. At the start of this chapter, it says in chapter 18, verse 1, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, and the word of the Lord said, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah receives a word from the Lord that the Lord will send rain on the earth. So Elijah is confident. That's why he says in verses 41 and 42, he tells Ahab, go ahead and start celebrating. Go ahead and start eating and drinking because I can almost hear the sound of rushing rain heading our way. However, even though Elijah's confident, even though Elijah has the promise of God's word that rain is coming, he's still praise. We're told that he goes to the top of Mount Carmel. He throws himself down to the ground, puts his head between his knees, and prays. So Elijah has the confidence of God's word, God's unchanging plans, God's unstoppable purposes, God's unfailing promises have been given to Elijah, and yet he still knows these promises must be prayed for if they are to be fulfilled. Dale Ralph Davies is an Old Testament scholar, and he writes this, commenting on these very verses. He says, quote, God's will is certain, 
but God delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. The prayers of the saints constitute the appointed channel by which God works his will. So God has things that he is certainly going to do. In this case, he is certainly going to give rain, but he is only going to do so inasmuch as Elijah humbles himself to pray. God, without a doubt, is going to fulfill his promise and send rain, but he is only going to do so inasmuch as Elijah asks him to do so. Let me give you a famous example of this from the New Testament. You think about Revelation chapter 22. We studied this chapter just last month on Sunday mornings. It's the last chapter of the Bible, and in one of the last verses of the last chapter, we read this. John writes, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then John responds, Amen. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. So it is a sure and fixed and certain promise that Jesus will return, as he says here. It is going to happen. But it is only going to happen inasmuch as we ask him to do so. As Davies said, God delights to do his will in response to the prayers of his people. So how do we pray? We pray in alignment with God's word, especially his promises. So I have to ask you, how familiar are you with the promises of God? If the promises of God are fulfilled as we pray for them to be fulfilled, how familiar are you with those promises? Do you meditate on them? Do you memorize them? Do you know them? Please know, I am not asking you to be a Bible scholar. I'm not asking you to read five chapters of Scripture today. But I am asking you, get familiar with the promises of God. For example, listen to this promise of Jesus. Oh, I hope you know this one intimately. This is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29. Jesus says this. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle, I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this is Jesus promising that he will give you rest and peace and stillness of soul. So friend, if you are worn out from laboring to prove yourself, if you are weary from trying to make yourself lovable, if you are exhausted from laboring to make yourself good enough for God, then Jesus says, come. Come to me. Repent of your religious self-effort. Repent of your so-called morality. Repent of trying to save yourself. Come to me. And, here's his promise, I will give you rest. I will give you deep, soul-level peace. And I'm here to tell you, friends, that we only experience that rest. We only experience that peace in as much as we seek God in prayer for it. 
Jesus has promised it. Jesus wants us to have it, but he also delights to do his will in response to the prayers of his people. And so church, let's pray in alignment with God's word. This means we must steep ourselves in the words that he's spoken to us. What promises are you meditating on in your life right now? What promises are you wanting to see fulfilled in your life right now? Let's search the scriptures for those promises and then let's humble ourselves in prayer, asking God to fulfill those promises right before us. Elijah's prayer is powerful and effective because he prays in alignment with God's word. And secondly, he models for us persistence in pursuing God's word. He models for us persisting in asking God to fulfill his promises. So continuing the narrative in verse 43, Elijah has been bowed down praying for God's promises to be fulfilled. He then looks up and speaks to his servant. He says to the servant, go up now, look out toward the sea. And so the servant went up, looked out at the sea and said, there is nothing. So Elijah has the promise of God that there will be rain. He then humbles himself in prayer, asking for that promised rain. But the result is initially nothing. His prayer does not work. So again, Elijah prays, and nothing, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, and nothing. Then verse 44 reads, at the seventh time, the servant reports to Elijah, behold, there's a little cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea. So God, for whatever reason, strings this one out a little bit. Seven different times, Elijah has to knock on the door of heaven before he gets an answer. I mean, you think about the previous scene during the God contest when Elijah prayed for fire to fall from heaven on the sacrifice. Boom, it happened like that. There's an immediate response. And he even mocks the worshipers of Baal because they get no response from their God. But now he's praying for the rain that God promised to give. And he has to do it seven different times. But here's the thing, he did it seven different times. He persists in pursuing the promises of God. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer, and Luke writes this. Jesus told them, the disciples, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus said, there was a certain city with a certain judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to the ungodly judge and saying, give me justice for my adversary. For a while, the ungodly judge refused, but afterward he said to himself, 
though I neither fear God nor respect man, but because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will finally give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not the God give justice to his elect, his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. So Jesus' point here is that God is more godly than an ungodly judge. No surprise. He says that God is more just than an ungodly judge. So if an ungodly judge grants justice to the persistent widow, then how much more will God not delay over you, his children? And yet, like Elijah, you may still have to persist. You may still have to persist. So Christian... What prayer in your life have you given up on? What prayer of yours did you at one time have enthusiasm for, but time has gone on, no change has occurred, and so you've left that prayer behind? But here's the thing. The way we pray shows what we think about God. Do we think he's no better than an ungodly judge? Not a chance. He's a benevolent father. And anybody here who's a father, have you had children with the habit of asking you for something over and over and over again? Oh my goodness, yes. I can answer in the affirmative on behalf of all of us. It was a stretch of time over this year. My two boys were asking me repeatedly, Dad, can we go to Luton's card shop in downtown Clawson? It's this sports card shop. I mean, on repeat, they were making this request. I even had to say, stop asking me. You can only ask me one time per day. (laughs) And so, of course, like clockwork, as soon as they woke up, Dad, is today the day? Now, why are they so persistent? It's because of the way they view me. Amazingly, despite my numerous failures as a father, they still view me as a giving father. And so they ask of me like I'm a giving father. And the same is true for us as we pray to God. The way we pray teaches us what we really think about God. If we view God as a giving Father, we will not let up. We will pray the desires of our heart. We will pray in accordance with His Word. And like my two boys, we will not give up. Man, children can teach us a lot about prayer. And so I ask you now, how do you view God? The more important question than do you pray enough is how do you view God? A lack of prayer, a lack of passion in prayer can indicate a deficient view of God. And I want to tell you that the claim of the gospel 
is that God is for you a father. God is for you a benevolent, giving, gracious, welcoming you back home no matter how far and long you've been gone kind of father. Through Jesus, God welcomes us into the family of God. And so if you're having struggle praying, I don't want you to just try harder, gut it out. No, I want your eyes to be opened to the heart of your heavenly Father. He is yours and you are his in Christ. That truth, that gospel truth will fuel a persistent prayer life. How then shall we pray? Elijah teaches us that we pray in accordance with God's word. Secondly, we pray with persistence. Finally, we pray in response to God's grace. We pray in response to God's grace. So let's finish up this chapter, finish up this part of Elijah's story. Look back at the middle of verse 44 through verse 46. So after the rain cloud starts to head their way, Elijah sends his servant to warn Ahab. Ahab needed to travel down Mount Carmel. And if you've ever traveled down a mountain when it's raining, you know that it can be an increased amount of difficulty. So Elijah wants to warn Ahab to get going, and he also wants to announce to him, hey, the rain is coming. You better get out of here, get back to Jezreel. Jezreel was the capital of the northern kingdom where Ahab's throne would have been. So They start to head back to Jezreel with his royal entourage. Elijah warns him to do so. Ahab's leaving in his chariot, but then kind of strangely, Elijah, by the power of God, sprints out ahead of Ahab's entourage. And Elijah continues to stay out ahead of Ahab, running out ahead of him until they reach Jezreel. Now, what's going on here? Well, commentators suggest that by sprinting ahead and leading God's king, Elijah is symbolizing that this is the way things should be. The prophet of God's word should proceed and be the forerunner of God's king. And this is a way of symbolizing that God's king doesn't rule merely by his own autonomous will. Rather, God's king rules under the authority of God's word. So Elijah, God's prophet, takes his place out in front of God's king as they travel back to Jezreel. And this point marks a crossroads for Ahab. He has just witnessed the Lord destroy Baal, his false god. Ahab has just witnessed the Lord bring promised rain for his people. And now Ahab has the prophet of God out in front of him so that Ahab can lead God's people with God's word. This is Ahab's chance to respond to the grace of God with humility and start to do things the right way. But we are going to see in coming weeks that this is not the way Ahab chooses to go. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, the writer talks about the danger of, quote, insulting the spirit of grace. In other words, the writer is saying that we can get to the point 
of such hard-heartedness towards God and His Word that there is barely any recourse toward turning back. And I'm afraid that's what we're witnessing in the life of Ahab. Again and again, Ahab egregiously sins against God. But again and again, God spares Ahab. And God gives Ahab confirming signs of his presence. But despite all of God's grace around him, Ahab's heart won't budge. It won't soften. Let me give you a generic example of this. There was a man who had a remarkably blessed life. He had a charming personality. He had natural abilities in athletics and music. He went to university to study. He eventually met a beautiful woman who he married. They attended church. They had many friends. They eventually had many children. His brother also had his dream job, so he was doing what he loved, doing what he was passionate about. But despite all this grace, despite all this goodness of God that surrounded him, it wasn't enough. He wanted more. He wanted more money. So he took a job that separated him from his wife and children way more than was healthy. And he wanted another woman. So he started an adulterous relationship, breaking his marital vows. Now, I'm not naming, name here, naming names here, but I bet many of us have heard this story before. I know I have. Someone who is surrounded by the blessing and grace of God, but it's not enough for them. They want more pleasure, more money, more fame, and so they sin to get it. They spurn the grace of God. They insult the spirit of grace. That's Ahab. That's King Ahab. But the truth is, that's all of us. To one degree or another, that's all of us. Ahab is clearly not the hero of this story, but the truth is that neither are we the hero of our own story. And so we need a savior. We need a new and better king than Ahab. We need a king who perfectly aligns himself with God's word, a king who lives unselfishly in service to those he leads, a king who leads sovereignly, but also lovingly and praise God. That's why 1 Kings is not the last book of the Bible, because King Ahab ain't it. Neither was Rehoboam before him, neither was Solomon before him, neither was even David before him. Instead, you got to go all the way forward to the coming of the anointed one, the true son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. He is a man of love. He is a leader of strength. He is a king of humility. Ahab refused to obey God. But we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did for you and me. That's the lengths of his obedience that Jesus did for broken, failed sinners like you and me. 
Ahab refused to be obedient to God's word, but Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Ahab refused to humble himself before God, but we're told in that same chapter of Philippians that King Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of the servant. We're talking about the Lord of glory. We're talking about the eternal word, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega. On the cross, he emptied himself of every divine privilege in order to serve us with the sacrifice necessary for our redemption. That's King Jesus. Friend, that is God's grace toward you, Jesus. He lived a perfectly beautiful life. Jesus lived a compelling, magnetic life. People were drawn to him from every class of society, from every ethnic group that laid eyes on him. Jesus was compelling and magnetic. He lived a beautiful life, King Jesus did. And then he died an awfully gruesome death. That was the length of his love. That was the length of his obedience as the true king. And as the true king, he awesomely triumphed over sin. And he did it all for you. For all who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, he lived and he died and he rose for you. And so I call on you now. Respond to the grace of the gospel. Don't harden your heart. Don't go on callousing yourself against the grace of God that fills your life. See the grace of God in Jesus and let's together say, thank you. Thank you, God, for your limitless mercy. Let's thank the Lord for his grace. Let's seek to follow him in obedience, giving over every idol to his holy presence. This morning, there was a brother sitting on the front row over here. Right now, he's with our kids in kids' ministry. His name is Will. And I got coffee with Will recently as a member here at the church. And after we met, I shook Will's hand. And you got to know about him that he is a UPS driver. Um, we all owe Will a huge thank you for bringing all of the stuff that we refuse to drive to the store for. I shook Will's hand, and I was stunned at what I felt. Calluses covering his hand, thick calluses from one end to the other, from handling those boxes day after day, hour after hour, shift after shift. And friends, the same thing that happened to Will's hands can happen to our hearts. Our hearts, like Ahab's, can become calloused over and insensitive to the word of God. And so when I say soften your heart, when I say open your eyes to the grace of God around you, this is not some religious talk, this is not some cute sermon, I am calling on you right now, behold the grace of God in your life. I am calling on you right now, see the grace of Christ in the cross and let it melt your heart. 
the beauty of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ. We heard him say earlier in Matthew chapter 11 that he is gentle. He is gentle. And he is lowly in heart before you. The high king of heaven is lowly of heart before you. That's our king. He is our lover. He is our friend. He is our savior through faith. And so I urge you, make him the center of your life. Join us in pursuing King Jesus as we worship together, as we serve together, as we do life together. We would love for you to join us pursuing Christ. Otherwise, our prayers do, in fact, not matter. If you live an Ahab-like life, no, your prayers will have no effect. You remember James chapter 5 says that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. And Proverbs chapter 15 says that the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to God. So we cannot expect to live in open, unrepentant sin and for our prayers to have any effect on heaven. And so right now, for the sake of your soul being saved, for the sake of your prayers being heard, repent. Turn from your sin, pursue Jesus, receive the Spirit, walk in righteousness, and let's pray with power. Amen? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's Word together. Have a moment of reflection on our lives, on God's Word, and then we'll sing. Father in heaven, we quiet our hearts in this moment and acknowledge with humility we are not the heroes of our own story. We have failed you. We failed ourselves. We can't even live up to our own standards. Our lives are broken. Our hearts are empty. We are needy. We are desperate for you, your presence, your love. And so, God, we do shout hallelujah. Thank you that this is not the end of the Bible story. Generations came and went, and so did the Son of God come, Christ Jesus, he who sits on the throne from now until forever. Thank you for these gospel promises that we have heard about come true in the man Christ Jesus, our hero. Thank you, God, for him. Father, I pray for any of my brothers and sisters here who've been praying for a long time, for a wayward child, for a nagging sickness, for a job, for resources, for health, for whatever. 
I pray, Father, that you would make us like our sister, the persistent widow. God, may we every day show up at the doorstep of heaven, knocking, seeking, asking for you. Coming to you, our gracious Father, for the needs of our hearts, for the things we want to see happen in our world. God, make us 